Welcome to On the Middle East, our monitor's podcast on the big stories in the region. My name is Ambrin Zaman, and this week I'll be talking about the massive earthquakes that struck Turkey and Syria on Monday, February 5th. The devastation is just impossible to capture with words. More than 22,000 people have died so far. As I recorded this podcast, more than 19,000 of those victims were reported in Turkey. The effects of the disaster will be felt for decades. The human toll is already huge. The economic toll is yet to be assessed, but it will be crippling. And what of the impact on Turkey's president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, and his ruling Justice and Development Party that's being fiercely criticised over its sluggish response? With us here to discuss these questions is Gönül Tol, Executive Director of the Middle East Institute's Turkey Programme, who just returned from the earthquake zone where she lost loved ones. So welcome to our programme, Gönül. We're deeply grateful to you for coming on our show at this very difficult time. We know that you have relatives who've been also uh, affected by this earthquake. So yes, we're very grateful. Thank you. Thanks for having me on, Bini. So you were in that disaster zone, you've just returned from there and you witnessed horrible scenes. Can you give us a sense of what it was like there? What was going on, the rescue effort, the popular mood? Um, well, we were, when the earthquake hit um, early morning on, on Monday, we were in Mersin, which is a only a few hour drive away from Hatay, which is one of the worst hit areas. Um, I was with my sister and and her four year old um, daughter. Um, obviously, when it first hit, we uh, had no idea where the, the epicenter of the earthquake was. Um, we only uh, we were made aware when my sister's husband, who lives in Antakya, Hatay, uh, gave us a call and said that the city had been leveled to the ground and that his uh, entire family um, were trapped under the rubble. Um, so um, then we drove there. Um, so he dug his father out of the rubble with his bare hands. Um, uh, and there was no one, basically. Um, only 48 hours later, um, rescue workers showed up only to tell us that they could not help us because they had been given instructions to focus their rescue efforts somewhere else. So my family was left alone and um, um, our loved one um, died there. As did many others, thousands of others. Uh, and there were uh, no agencies in the first 48 hours. There was no one. There was no civil society. The military hadn't been dispatched. So people were basically um, left alone. Um, and they did their, their best to, to save their, their lo loved ones. I mean... I'm very, very sorry to hear about your loss, but when they said they needed to focus their efforts elsewhere, what did they mean by that? Did you get a sense that people with government connections were somehow being prioritized? That's exactly right, and that's what we heard. Um, a person, but I cannot tell which 
party he was from because the only thing that he said was I'm um I have instructions from a, a member of parliament from Istanbul that he has relatives in this in this address so I, I need to find out where that is uh, but aside from that I think uh, there was there were instructions uh, of what uh, Turkey's rescue uh uh, management presidency, I believe. Uh, it was there, not early enough, again, but when it got there, I think they had received specific instructions as to uh, what to do, which made things really worse in a way, because not only did they show up late, but they just, um, they operated in a way that didn't make sense to many people who were there, because our family members when they got there, they, they were still alive and they could have helped them and they didn't. So I don't know um, uh, what guided their uh, their operations, but they certainly were not effective, especially to people like me and my family, whose loved ones did not get help on time. This is absolutely terrible. And we're hearing similar stories uh, from across that region. And Erdogan actually went there. But far from sounding sympathetic, caring, he sounded extremely confrontational, didn't he? And from the get-go, one of the first actions taken by this government was to create this hotline for reporting so-called uh, disinformation. So the government seems to be really very much focused on sort of <laughs> preserving its, uh, itself before even giving any thought to how it can you know, help people, rescue people. Is this curtains for Erdogan and the AKP? Well, it's it's early to tell, Ambedin, because, you know, he survived previous disasters. Rem remember the Soma uh, mining uh, accident that killed um, 301 miners. And many people thought that that would have a huge impact on his uh, election prospects. It didn't. And there were others. There were there was the Chorlu train uh, accident. Again, uh, I believe 25 people lost their lives there. And if you look at so there's a pattern here and he makes us Erdogan makes us to believe that that we should accept it as fate. But there is actually um, a bigger story to tell here. Corruption and misrule have played a huge role in um, in paving the way to an even bigger tragedy. Now, I understand a, an earthquake of this magnitude, it kills people. Um, but these earthquakes kill more people. They are more lethal in countries where institutions do not work, independent, capable institutions are not there, where um, a, a handful of cronies in construction companies uh, have been granted government uh, infrastructure, government contracts, and they have very little disregard for safety regulations, for, for building codes, uh, where civil society organizations have been wiped out. When the 1999 earthquake hit uh, northwestern Turkey, I was a college student, and we were pretty quick in mobilizing a, a network of university students uh, to go there to help the victims. And when we got there, uh, uh, there were, Turkish military had been dispatched. Uh, there were other civil society organizations and uh, there were rescue workers. Uh, it was, it was a, 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 a devastating um, incident. And yet you could see that there were several 
government agencies and civil society organizations on the ground trying to help people, not this time. And That's that very interesting because, you know, I covered that earthquake and, of course, people were bitterly complaining about how slow and bungled the government response was. And indeed, you know, we all believe that that played a role in uh, the rise of the uh, AK party and the fact that the parties who were in power at that time, you know, just all collapsed in that election that did bring the AK party to power. So to hear you say that it's even worse this time, how can Erdogan, despite, you know, all the skills and all the luck he's had and how he's managed to persuade people, at least some people, that this is their fate and, you know, it's Allah's will, etc., that he can pull this off again this time when it's on such a massive scale and we are in the midst of a huge economic crisis? Um, don't you think this is kind of a turning point and that at the same time the wall of fear has also crumbled in Turkey? It is. It is a turning point. I think in many ways, you're right. I mean, the, the level of destruction is so huge that it's Im almost impossible to think that this will not have any impact on, on his electoral prospects. But on the other hand, you know, I'm sorry to say this, but we have to be paying attention if you want me to address this question about how this would impact the election prospects. We have to be paying attention to when and how the elections will be held. Remember, the earthquake affected an area where there are almost 10 million people live there, right? So how are you going to hold elections in these regions? And who are they, who did they vote for in the previous election? So you have to take those things into consideration. And the second thing is, I think it will have, it's already had an implication effect on on the opposition. Erdogan has been blessed with a divided um, opposition. And just a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about how the opposition failed to field a candidate, that they were still so divided that they would not be able to pull this off. We're not, no one is talking about that right now. And the opposition, I think the, the main uh, opposition party's leader, Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu, did, did, did the best thing, where he, he put the blame on Erdogan, saying, this is on you, Erdogan. The reason why there's so many deaths, so much destruction, it's because of you, because you've centralized power in your own hands. And the other important party, E-Party leader, said the same thing. So I think it will have implications on, on many levels. Uh, but again, having seen Erdogan, having survived similar incidents, um, I, I, I'm just saying that we should just still wait because he can still take steps to heal the wounds, uh, and that could improve his prospects. But I think it's going to be extremely difficult. He really has to do his very best. And I haven't seen that uh, so far. Exactly. And, and as we said, he's been quite confrontational. Um, but at the same time, of course, he has become, I think, much more vulnerable on many fronts and on the diplomatic front too. Do you see all of this... Um, sort of having an impact on his very confrontational foreign policy. I mean, will Erdogan still be able to say to NATO, for example, no, you can't take Sweden in unless Sweden does X, Y, and Z. Um, you know, can he still talk about invading Northeast Syria? It's extremely difficult, uh, Ambedin. And remember, remember what the, the Minister of Interior has said about uh, the US. He's been attacking 24-7, uh, the US and the Western world, and yet they were really quick 
to um, to ask for help from from the Western world right after the earthquake hit. And I just just today I saw uh, a NATO decision. I think, and they also dispatched the U.S. also dispatched a a a, a, um, a military um, ship that's going to be very critical. Uh, to help the victims there. So uh, so allies have mobilized and it's going to be very difficult for him to um, to do the things, to say the things that he's been saying until now. And regarding another military incursion into Syria, that would be a, I think, a suicide. Not, not, not right now. Um, he cannot, he cannot possibly legitimize that. Uh, before he it was difficult for him to legitimize that from an international point of view, uh, but he didn't care as long as um, people at home bought his argument that this was the best course of action to address the, the refugee question. He cannot do that right now. He cannot sell that idea to a country that is, that's been hurting, you know? So it's gonna be very difficult. He, he's, he's gonna have to scale back um, what he's been doing on, on the foreign policy front. In the meantime, something interesting happened. We, we all know, of course, that several Kurdish dom dominant regions were badly affected, and you're already hearing, um, you know, people saying that they were discriminated against because they were Kurdish, because they were Alevi, that helps not arriving. It's hard to substantiate. Uh, it seems that just judging by your own personal story that a lot of people, uh, you know, are being treated like second class citizens. Um, but the PKK came out and said that it was declaring a unilateral ceasefire inside Turkey, that it would not attack any Turkish military targets unless it came under attack itself. How do you, um, you know, what do you think of that statement? Why, why now? And what's the calculation? Well, you know, even, um, even terrorist organizations, uh, need to be seen as legitimate actors um, and i think this was this was certainly the right decision uh you know for many many years uh the pkk always argued that we never target civilians we only target military targets now we know that that's not true they've they've targeted civilians but when they say that that's their effort to legitimize their cause, because they still have to appeal to a, an important segment of, of the country. They still have a constituency. And in their eyes, the PKK is still a legitimate organization. Uh, it's not a killing machine. That's how they see it. So they have to be able, that's why they, even terrorist organizations, they have to um, have concerns about these humanitarian situations. So it was the right call on their part uh i don't know what's going to happen i don't know if they're going to come under attack and then then they will attack back uh but this is certainly an eff an effort on their part to to be seen as, as a legitimate actor not only for the people in turkey but also be seen as such to a larger international audience uh, because remember the pkk and the pyd they've uh uh, they've, uh, because of what, what's been happening in Syria and their fight against ISIS, um, they are they have a different profile now in the Western world. So they want to keep that, I think, intact. And that's uh, that's how I see their latest decision.
That's very interesting. Um, you just wrote an excellent book called Erdogan's War, A Strong Man's Struggle at Home and in Syria. Now, of course, there's a whole Syrian dimension to all of this because Syria was also affected. And at the same time, we have this effort at normalization by Erdogan with uh, Bashar al-Assad, with Assad saying, you know, sure, but you have to get out of Syria first. Um, my first question to you would be, uh, do you see this normalization process being in fact accelerated by what's just happened? Because after all, one of the big fears lurking in Erdogan's mind must be that all those people in Northwest Syria who were you know, affected by this earthquake may well want to come to Turkey and perhaps you know, cooperating with the regime in some way helps prevent that. Um, what are your thoughts on that, Gunnar? Good question, Ambirin. I think, but right now, I think he's going to be too much focused on what's happening um, in the country. Uh, and I'm expecting him to postpone elections. Uh, I, I, I think I, it's really, it's going to be very difficult for him to hold elections in May. He could postpone a month or two. A lot of people are saying that it's, it's really not easy for him to postpone that for a year. Uh, and, and some people have raised that, that point. So that means um, he, has a, he has a very small window of opportunity to do something meaningful for his domestic calls on the foreign policy front. So before the earthquake, normal, uh, normalization with Assad was, was certainly high on his agenda. Uh, for basically domestic reasons. Again, he frames any incursion into Syria along with shaking hands with Assad as the only way uh, to address the refugee question, which is a high priority for Turkish borders. So that was, I, I had been uh, expecting that to happen before the elections, but now with what's, what's, what's happened on, on Monday, that's going to be very difficult. I mean, doing anything major on the foreign policy front is going to be difficult because all energy and efforts, uh, they have to be focused on uh, on the domestic front and healing the wounds of this, uh, this tragedy. Uh, for sure. Um, one final question, Gunil. How would you assess the opposition's performance and in particular Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu who rushed to the disaster zone? He got there before the president did. I was pleasantly surprised and I particularly appreciated his statement that put the blame on Erdogan. Because, you know, as you said, Erdogan always frames these things as an act of God, accepted as a faith. Um, and just move on. Uh, but that's not it, is it? It's not just fate. It's uh, his policies, his corruption and misrule that's caused so many deaths and someone has to pay for this. So that's why I appreciated Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu's initial statement. I wasn't sure whether Meral Akşener, the leader of E-Party, was going to join him. Uh, but he, she did a day after uh, basically saying the, so many people have died because you centralize power in your own hands and there is no one who is willing to take any initiative 
to respond to a crisis like this. You really need independent and capable institutions and independent um, uh, people in key positions who are willing to take an initiative, right? You can't just wait for Erdogan's call from Ankara when there are thousands of people are buried under the rubble. And that's exactly what people did. They, because no one can lift a finger before getting a green light from Erdogan, there's just one man who makes all the decisions in the country and everyone has to wait for, for uh, the word that will come out of his mouth. But you, that's not how you can operate in a situation like that. You have to act fast. You have to take an initiative, sometimes take a risk. You have to be capable. Um, and none of that was that. So I think... Um, Kılıçdaroğlu and, and Meral Akşener's statements were great. And I also appreciated the, the CHP-run uh, municipalities' efforts to send people to the affected regions. Uh, and so far, they've been very effective in delivering aid and, um, and taking part in search and rescue um, efforts. There was a lot of criticism of, over the fact that the army wasn't deployed in the early days and even when it was in such few numbers. Is it that Erdogan is scared of giving the army a role? Is he still frightened that, you know, somehow this will empower the military in ways that could threaten him? That's my theory. That's my first thought, because I thought, and let me say this, you know, Erdogan's MO. When when something like this happens, he disappears. Uh, he doesn't respond for a few days. He lets his um, aides and ministers uh, um, talk to address the people. So if something fails, it's on them. And then he appears in front of the cameras. At this time, it took him three days, but still by his own standards, that was early. So that means how terrified he is of the prospects. Uh, in the upcoming elections. Um, so uh, so I think um, he uh, didn't, he, he probably thought twice before dispatching uh, the military, thinking that at a time when, when anger is directed at him and his government, he probably did not want the military to be the heroes, to be, he didn't want to see this united front between the people and the military at a time when he's getting blamed. Uh, and of course, that's that's just my theory. I could carry on this conversation forever. It's always a fascinating discussion with you, dear Gunnar, but you have so many demands on your time, so I'll let you go. Thank you again for coming on the show at this horribly difficult time. Thanks, Ambiru. This brings us to the end of another episode of On the Middle East. Our thoughts and prayers or with the people of Turkey and Syria. Thank you and goodbye.